American freedom is secured by the commitment of our courts and our people to the rule of law. National Review's The McCarthy Report offers listeners in-depth analysis on the most pressing legal questions facing the country. Alongside National Review Editor-in-Chief Rich Lowry, veteran prosecutor and law professor Andy McCarthy leverages his decades of legal experience to cut through the noise of media hysteria with sober-minded, thoughtful commentary. Tune in to The McCarthy Report on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. The Trump indictments just keep coming, and Hunter Biden gets the special counsel treatment from his dad's Justice Department. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Noah Rothman. Rich is out for the rest of the week, but he shall return. In the meantime, we're joined today by Charles C.W. Cook, Jim Garrity, and Dominic Pino. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Waterstone and Fast Growing Trees. More on them in a minute. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So if you think the amount of time that this podcast devotes to Donald Trump's indictments is getting a little gratuitous, imagine how we feel. Last night, uh, Monday night, we got yet another indictment out of Fulton County, Georgia, after a bizarre spectacle in which prosecutors seemed to accidentally publish the charges they sought against Donald Trump and 18 other associates before the grand jury had even voted them out. But when we got them, they finally did produce charges against Trump and company, and it's a RICO case, uh, alleging that Trump, his legal team, including familiar names like Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, and Mark Meadows, and a number of allies in Georgia engaged in a variety of schemes aimed at interfering with the state's ability to conduct the 2020 elections. Trump and company face 41 counts, uh, including 161 separate acts that violate Georgia law and involve the subornation of illegal acts from public officials. The accusations include conspiracy to defraud the state, making false statements, filing false documents, harassing and intimidating election officials, impersonating a public officer, forgery, attempting to influence the testimony of witnesses, tampering with voting machines, and even a plot to steal voting system data. So our own uh, Andy McCarthy has written on this with an instant reaction, and his case seems to be that A, it's stronger than the Bragg case, so that's a low bar to clear, and B, it's likely going to be easier to prove than the federal case against Trump's post-election conduct. Uh, that's the Chris Smith indictment, the second one involving the January Smith, uh, January 6th conduct, because at the state level, these statutes are pretty straightforward and the violations seem rather clear. What's more, there's really no way out of this for Donald Trump, even if he does return to the White House. So even though RICO statutes, or RICO cases rather, are notoriously complicated and kind of hard to prove, Andy says that in the New York Post, he writes, if he were convicted, it would stick. Charlie, what do you make of it? What are your first impressions? Well, I have two first impressions. One is that... There is a big gap between the headline and the ease of comprehension insofar as it is clear what Donald Trump is ultimately being indicted for, which is his behavior after the election and on January 6th. But the details of it, the debates over it, are going to be quite hard to follow for laymen and indeed for many lawyers who are not familiar with RICO statutes or the federal precedents around RICO that the states, I'm given to believe, are usually obliged to follow. RICO is something of a meme joke online. It's the statute that people who don't know anything about the law threaten others with or insist certain figures have violated. It's a long-standing uh, 
uh, joke. And, of course, the actual statutes are not jokes. The actual statutes are real, but they are extremely complicated, and they are designed to deal with extremely complicated situations. The reason that they were contrived in the first place is that sometimes you come upon a criminal enterprise that is so large and sprawling and multifaceted that you have no choice but to pull together all of the various strands and weave them into one indictment. That is what has been done here, but unlike in most circumstances, we're not dealing with the mafia uh, or some large organized crime syndicate. We're dealing with a presidential candidate and with the lawyers and representatives and acolytes that that presidential candidate employed. So this is going to be very difficult to follow. That's my first impression. My second impression is that we have now reached the point at which this is the central story line for Donald Trump. We're not talking here about one prosecution. We're not talking here about the Bragg indictment, which I thought was weak and political and potentially indefensible. We're talking about a front runner for the Republican nomination who is being indicted in so many different ways and in so many different circumstances and for so many different things that the vast majority of voters are going to be left primarily with a simple impression, and that is that Trump is a mess and a liability. I mean, we have indictments now at the federal level and indictments at the state level. We have civil cases, three of them, and criminal cases, four of them. We have cases to do with Stormy Daniels and alleged hush payments. We have stories to do with the interference with Congress's role. We have a case here in which Donald Trump is accused of trying to overturn the election. All of those have different implications. This case, for example, could not be squashed if Donald Trump were president again, this new one, because it's a state case. The federal case could be, although that would raise its own constitutional questions. A Republican president who isn't Donald Trump could plausibly pardon Trump or stop the other indictments, but not this one. You know, this is a huge web, and yet we see absolutely no sign that the enthusiasm for Donald Trump in the Republican primary electorate is diminishing. So, you know, what we've got is is a mess and uh, <laughs> it it's it's reached the tipping point now at which if this hasn't sent the message to the public then nothing will jim let's take charlie's framing of it and say that voters really can't distinguish plain statutory language and accused violations from the politics of it and I think that's fair. It's probably true. Zoom out for us from the metro Atlanta area. Give us the 30,000-foot lay of the land politically with indictments stretching from the Great Lakes to the Appalachian Plateau. Where do voters come down on this? Do they suspend disbelief and sit back and chin stroke over the allegations in the courtroom? <laughs> or, or do they apply their well-formed priors about this guy, his conduct, and what he means to our political system. Noah, people are much more likely to change their mind about which team is going to win the AFC East this year than they are about change their minds about Donald Trump. You know, even before he came down that golden escalator in the you know early summer of 2015, I think you know Liz Mayer had said you know Trump had something like 98, 99 percent name recognition, and most people knew what they felt about him. Felt about him. It's been eight years, right? He has been front and center in our lives almost every day, 
you know, something like probably 70, 80, 90% of our days every day for the past eight years. People know exactly what they think of Donald Trump. And it's extraordinarily unlikely that any of these indictments are going to change a lot of people's minds one way or the other. Uh, as I just posted in the corner a little bit earlier this morning, you know, most Americans don't like Donald Trump. I know a lot of people listening to this podcast don't want to hear that. But it doesn't matter whether you're measuring by U.S. adults, by registered voters, by likely voters. His unfavorable rating is considerably higher than his favorable rating. You look at the 538 averaging of all the polls, about 39% of Americans have a favorable feeling towards Trump and 55.9% have an unfavorable feeling. I suspect if you said, do you think Trump is guilty in the Stormy Daniels case, you'd probably get a split, something like that. You did the same thing in the classified documents case, same thing in the Jack Smith uh, January 6th case and this case down in Georgia. My guess is you'd get right about the same uh, response. And my guess is that most people, when asked, do you think Trump is innocent or guilty of these charges, are going to say something. It's going to line up very, you know, 90-some percent with whether they like Donald Trump or not. Trump defenders think he's done nothing wrong and that he's unjustly the most unjustly prosecuted man in America since Richard Kimball. And that, uh, you know, all of this is a him getting railroaded and a witch hunt and the deep state is after him, yada, yada, yada. And a majority of Americans say, nah, he broke the law. He's an SOB. Uh, throw, you know, lock, lock, lock him up, as uh, Trump would have said back then. So I don't think this is going to change many people's minds. I do find it kind of fascinating that, um, you know, right now Donald Trump is ahead of all of his Republican presidential primary opponents for indictments to none. Um, none of them have even. None of the others have even gotten one, which I think really demonstrates that they're slacking. They've got there. a fail goal. Yeah, you know, um, and just kind of this recognition that like Trump, you know, like the, the Republican base is completely convinced this guy he's the only guy who can win, which is nonsense. Uh, that you know, all of Biden's weaknesses are the same weaknesses whether you nominate DeSantis or Tim Scott or Nikki Haley or any of these other ones. Um, and yet, they're, they're, you know, we, we've had Trump will this morning on uh, Truth Social was running around and insisting he's going to, you know, the coming next week is going to be a large, complex, detailed, but irrefutable report on the presidential election fraud, which took place in Georgia. It's almost complete, yada, yada. So like, he's going to relitigate 2020 if he's the nominee. Oh, by the way, one other thing to keep in mind, you look at the timing of these trials. The January 6th one, they want to start get started in, in January. Uh, the next one, they want the Manhattan one, they want to get started around March. And the classified documents case starts in May. We don't know when the Georgia case is going to begin. We'll have some verdicts probably by Election Day 2024. There's a really good chance. I mean, you look at the sheer 91 felony charges. I mean, you could talk yourself into saying, ah, the Manhattan case, he'll, he'll get off on that one. Um, the classified documents case, it sounds like a, you know, literally mile, you know, piles and piles of evidence. But... Uh, it's very tough to get a conviction against celebrities and uh, elected officials in South Florida. So you could imagine a scenario where some holdout juror, you know, Trump gets off on that one. I think these last two indictments, people are just kind of much more up in the air. You know, what's, uh, in, in D.C., the jury pool is probably going to be very tough for Trump. In Georgia, it might be better, might not, depends on whether they hold the case there in Atlanta. Um, but you can just see a scenario where Trump is convicted. And now we're in this, you know, odd situation of, you know, can the president run for, you know, can he be president from a prison cell, et cetera. An ordinary Republican Party, a rational Republican Party would look at this and say, you know what, maybe we shouldn't nominate a convicted felon. Maybe that would be bad. Maybe that would make it a little bit tougher to get the guy, get this guy elected. But at this point, nobody's interested in doing that. Everybody's hellbent, you know. 100% behind, not everybody, you know, a, a majority of the party is behind this guy. And it's their attitude is ride or die. And even against 80-year-old Joe Biden, you nominate Donald Trump, there's a really good chance Biden wins a second term. So, Dominic, let's pivot from there. We know what a healthy political party and a sane political culture, how that would respond to this development, obviously. That is not applicable. Um, but if the Republican Party snapped into sanity today. Let's just speculate. All of a sudden, they have this revelation. That revelation would include the uh, the notion here that Donald Trump's dominance of their party and his renomination would preclude talking about agenda items ahead of 2024, what the Republican Party would like to see in policy terms in the next four years of this uh, country's history. And you're a policy guy. I think you probably have some policy preferences. What 
will be sacrificed. From your perspective, in the event that Donald Trump wins this nomination, what do we not get to talk about? What do we not get to pursue from the political process? Uh, as Jim was saying, I think anything other than the 2020 election. I mean, what is the um, what what is the what is the agenda that is going to um, uh, you know? Can, can, one of the problems with Trump that we've always had, um, and this has been true even when he was president, is he spends more time attacking Republicans than he does attacking Democrats. Um, you know, Republicans who he believes are insufficiently loyal to him, Republicans who um, don't go along with whatever his agenda might be at the at, at any given moment, and he usually doesn't talk very much about Democrats at all. And in a general election, you got to run against the Democrats. Now, in 2016, he had the unique advantage of running against Hillary Clinton. Um, but this time, Joe Biden has actually demonstrated he can win an election. Um, he is more, he, you know, he's not popular, but he's more popular than Hillary Clinton. And um, it's uh, and it's going to be a real problem for him if he doesn't have anything to talk about other than the fact that um, he thinks that the 2020 election was stolen from him. So I, I just, you know, there's any number of different policy areas that are going to get untouched. And part of the reason for that as well is who's going to want to work for this guy. You're going to have, um, you know, in the first Trump administration, you had a really, you know, an overall pretty solid team of, of conservative uh, policy leaders that were part of his, um, uh, part of his cabinet and things like that. But, you know, the second time, uh, if he's just going to talk about 2020, if he's going to be under a criminal indictment for, a, uh, you know, and like we said, you know, the, the, the state level one, if, if that ends up, um, if that ends up going through, that's, that's, that's not going anywhere. Uh, who's going to want to work for him? Um, it's not going to be smart people that actually want to get stuff done. It's going to be people who are, are personally loyal to Trump for, for any variety of other uh, likely non-policy related reasons. So, um, we're invested in retribution. Yeah, that too. So it, that means. there's, there's just, it, it, it's just, yeah. It, like, um, like Jim and Charlie were saying, I mean, it's just, it, it, if this doesn't convince people, if this doesn't make people say, Hey, you know, we should probably, probably go for someone else. Um, and that could still happen too. I mean, it, you know, uh, saying it's a, it's a majority of the Republican party. I don't, necessarily think it's a majority of the Republican Party. Right now, it's a majority of the Republican Party who uh, are going to vote in a primary election, but there's plenty of people who identify as Republicans that don't vote in primaries, and I don't think any of those people uh, are probably too excited about about Trump. It's just uh, you know part of the problem with our primary system is that we reward this um, relatively small part of the uh, population and give them the ability to choose who everyone else gets to vote for. And um, it's 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 not a good it's not a good system, and uh, I think we're seeing the the downside of that. Noah, can I add something to that? You asked Dominic which policy areas will be ignored. The potential outcome of a third Trump nomination, and presumably a second Trump loss, will not just be bad policy outcomes for the United States, but the complete destruction of everything that at this point Donald Trump is able to say that he did. I speak to a good number of people who try to convince me that I should vote for Donald Trump. They've read me write that I think he's disqualified himself with his behavior. They know that I think he should have been impeached. They've heard me on this podcast say that there is a difference between policy disagreements and what he did after 2020. And they say, don't you like some of the things that he did while he was president? And the answer to that is, yes, I do. I have had this debate with my friends on the left, the other way around. People who would say, well, Ben Sass says that he's angry with Trump, but he voted for the tax cuts. Nope, that's not a healthy way of looking at politics. Some of the things that Donald Trump did were good. His judges were good. He cut taxes. I think they should have been paid for. But the reforms that Donald Trump signed into law were good in and of themselves. That legacy, which is the one thing that he has going for him, is under serious threat from Donald Trump. This is the bit that I think his followers have not grasped, especially those who dissent 
from my view, from the National Review editorial line, from the neoliberal position on a whole bunch of things. They say he beat Hillary Clinton, he saved the Supreme Court, he cut taxes, he did this, this, and this. Well, all right, what happens if he loses next year? Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas are not young men. There is a reasonable chance, heaven forfend, that one of them dies if uh, in the next four years. The tax cuts partially expire. There is a huge tax fiscal cliff coming in, I think, 2027. The, the maintenance of the tax cut package from 2017 is not guaranteed, especially if the Republicans get wiped out in Washington, D.C., and Joe Biden is returned to the White House. It is entirely possible that it's not just that by nominating Donald Trump, the Republicans will lose the chance to talk about overspending and inflation and the court and foreign policy and regulation and so on and so forth, but that by losing by nominating Donald Trump, they're going to end up back where they would have been in 2016 if Trump hadn't beat Hillary Clinton, and thereby completely unable to point to his presidency as anything other than a blip. I think that ought to focus Republican minds, and especially pro-Trump Republican minds, but for some reason it's not. I would like to, I agree with all of that, I'd like to tag it. By noting that I, I think the Republican electorate is underserved right now by the conservative media apparatus, which is in a state of denial. They are focused entirely on the cosmic injustice of it all. There's the unfairness of it all, the legality of it all, and the Pandora's box of potentially criminalizing political conduct. And even in some quarters, salivating over the prospect of turning the tables on Democrats and, and criminalizing their political conduct. That's all in the future. This is happening right now. Whether you like it or not, Donald Trump will be in and out of courtrooms for the remainder of the next 18 months devoting outsized time and resources to preserving his freedom. And that's where voters' attentions will be. This will be the biggest procedural drama to which Americans have ever been treated, and Americans love a procedural drama. His nomination ensures that the presidential election will become a proxy over whether Donald Trump deserves to go to jail, whether his conduct ahead of and leading up to January 6th was proper or prudent, whether you think any of this is a good argument, much less one that can win the voting public, it will come at the cost of litigating anything resembling a Republican agenda for the four years that will follow the 2024 election. Trump is planning this. He is telling you, I'm not going to be there, folks. I'm going to be busy in court. If he's planning accordingly, so should you. But let's zoom out for a second and think about donating. Donating to your preferred causes, and that's when Waterstone comes into play. When Patricia tried to donate to a conservative organization through her donor-advised fund, her request was denied. Why? Because they said she was trying to give to a hate group. That's why she switched to Waterstone, a donor-advised fund dedicated to upholding Judeo-Christian values. Waterstone is unique in the world of donor-advised funds. It accepts gifts of cash, as well as real estate, business interests, oil, and much more. They can help you receive an immediate tax deduction and make a difference in the charity of your choosing. With its charitable pooled trusts, you can even guarantee a guaranteed income stream from your charitable giving. Waterstone strictly adheres to a Christian statement of faith, including a pro-life declaration, and it does not give to charities that contradict those values. Waterstone is trusted by so many men and women of conviction that they give $10 million per month in charitable grants. They can work with you or your financial advisor to make a giving strategy that fits your needs. Contact Waterstone's Giving Strategies team today for more information by visiting waterstone.org. That's waterstone.org. So Friday mornings, the editor's podcast recorded early, just too early to catch an announcement from Attorney General Merrick Garland that he would name U.S. Attorney David Weiss to lead a special counsel investigation into Hunter Biden's alleged misconduct. We haven't talked about this. I know it feels like it happened ages ago. It only happened on Friday. The editors at National Review have taken a dim view of this thing. This is the same prosecutor who allowed the statute of limitations to elapse before bringing charges against Hunter Biden over the course of a four-year investigation. Somehow he's been named special counsel, even though he's, A, the architect of a uniquely cushy plea deal, that would have immunized Hunter against a variety of future charges, and that an independent counsel should come from outside the DOJ, which Weiss does not. 
So there's been a lot of frustration on the right over this thing, but we there hasn't been a lot of talk about the bright side for Republicans, too. It's gone unexplored. In a memo, Weiss noted that he does not think there will be a repeat of this plea agreement. Quote, the government now believes that the case will not resolve short of trial. Hunter's attorneys don't think a trial is inevitable, and they might be right, but we're not dealing with that, and they're not dealing with you know, adversaries on the other side of the of the table here, but in political terms, Republicans demanded a special counsel. They got one, not on the terms they prefer, but the president is now in an unprecedentedly powerless situation. His own Justice Department is prosecuting his son for schemes. He's alleged, Joe Biden is alleged with increasing veracity to have been aware of, to know the details of, to have been, at least peripherally, involved in. This seems like an especially damning political predicament for the president, one he doesn't seem to be treating as political, in part because of his whole, the whole narrative around him, which is that he can't be held accountable for anything Hunter does because he's a doting father. And, and that should just be, be it. Jim, if that's the line that Joe Biden is a doting father, he was blind to his son's misdeeds, and he doesn't want to treat any of this as political, and, and how dare you even discuss it as political— the line there is, I mean, well, the implication there is that he didn't benefit from these financial schemes. He was just really, really you know, infatuated with his son and wanted what's best for him. But of course, that's the benefit, is it not? If you're a doting father, your son's financial well-being is your own financial well-being. It is a contribution to your interests. If you're selling that access to the president, you have a quid pro quo. Where am I wrong? You're not wrong. And I also would note that we, there have been, you know, at least reports, I don't know how, you know, no way to verify those reports, that money in the Biden family uh, is fungible, uh, that Hunter Biden covers some expenses for his dad and vice versa. And so that by paying his son, you are effectively paying the president. And the idea that right. these are so two completely separate entities are, is kind of absurd on the face of it. No, I, I was... Uh, I was out last week, but I saw the coverage of this, and the statement from Merrick Garland had this very strange contradiction in it, in which it insisted that uh, Weiss had always had all the freedom he'd ever had to indict, to pursue any course of investigation he wanted. There was never any pressure from above. There was never any indication that anybody was dragging their feet or refusing to investigate or refusing to prosecute on certain matters. Uh, the IRS whistleblowers, oh, pish posh, that's nonsense, balderdash, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then the insistence that, you know, clearly he's never had any restrictions and always he's been also to make sure he doesn't have any restrictions for making him a special counsel. Wait, what? <laughs> Wait, if, if everything was fine before, why are you changing it? And by changing it, aren't you acknowledging that maybe that on some level something was not fine, that something had to be changed? Um, and I was kind of pleased to see, I think it was, you know, Jake Tapper on CNN saying, well, maybe the, these uh, whistleblowers that the House Republicans have been spotlighting were right all along. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, why, why is everyone thinking it's so unthinkable that anybody in the Department of Justice, Internal Revenue Service, or any other part of the federal government might say, ah, you know what, that's the president's son. We answer to him. Let's not investigate that. Let's, let's not look too hard at that. Um, Look, you know, this, this, first of all, this is a vindication for House Republicans. This is a vindication for everyone who's said from the very beginning that something stinks here. And all of it, like, you know, if you look at this and if you look at like the, uh, the lab leak theory, you know, two of the biggest issues, certainly in my coverage of the last couple of years, and in both cases, like, no, it's totally coincidental that this, you know, secretive Chinese government run lab uh, that was doing gain of function research on coronaviruses found in bats. And they were taking existing bat viruses, making them more dangerous, making them more virulent, making them more contagious. But it's purely coincidental that the outbreak of COVID-19 was just down the road. And in this case, yes, of course, Hunter Biden, who by his own admission was smoking crack every 15 minutes, he was an extraordinarily in-demand business consultant, being asked to be on the boards of directors of, of uh, Ukrainian natural gas ones and Chinese government-connected business. Everybody, their, I mean, their brother, wanted to be in business with Hunter Biden, but it had nothing to do with his president being, with his father being vice president, and then a likely future, you know, future presidential candidate and president. Like in both of these, oh, this it's totally coincidental. And anybody with eyes could say, no, it's not coincidental. And, you know, as I laid back in this timeline of Hunter Biden way back in the beginning of the 2020 uh, presidential cycle, Hunter Biden has always been in this murky position in which he's 
if not explicitly illegal, in an ethically bad and legal gray area of, oh, you know, he was a lobbyist for a lot of years, but he insisted he never lobbied his father. Oh, okay. You know, uh, hi, Chris Dodd. This is your uh, buddy Joe's son, Hunter. Hey, we, we had an earmark we'd like to have put in that bill, right? From the very beginning, like Hunter Biden's whole life is this murky thing. And the idea of when he's coked out of his mind, everybody was itching to do business with him and it had nothing to do with his father? Come on. So that's where we are, Noah. Yeah, so when you put it like that, Dominic, when you put it like that, Democrats should probably have a better grasp of the political peril that they're courting here. They're not getting any help from the mainstream press. Mainstream press is not laying out the facts in a politically damning fashion, as Jim just did. Um, How do they navigate 2024 by finally parsing these distinctions? Do they? His family legal troubles, to me, would seem at least in part to neutralize probably the best argument they have against Donald Trump's campaign, which is this guy is just festooned with legal baggage. We can't have that in the Oval Office. Does that just sort of cancel each other out in in voters' minds? Uh, I I think it probably does. And I think this is one of the only things that, um, you know, uh, helps give Donald Trump a chance in a general election, quite honestly. And, you know, we were just talking about how the primary system ill serves Republicans and how, you know, you have this, um, this, uh, the party in, in all likelihood would, would like to nominate someone else, but, um, the primary electorate, uh, uh, the way that that is set up, it makes that very difficult to do. Democrats are probably in the same position. There's probably a lot of Democrats who would very much like to nominate someone else because, you know, not only, I mean, not only all this new stuff with Hunter Biden, which is which is really bad, but for the same reasons that we've been seeing for Joe Biden for a while, he's pretty old. He's not doing great. Um, he's not popular, and um, uh, you know, for an incumbent president, his uh, approval ratings are, are are not doing very well, even within his own party. And so, um, you know, th- there is. A, a, a very significant uh, case that the Democrats would also like someone else. But again, Joe Biden is the guy who can win a Democratic primary. We saw that in 2020. Um, there were, you know, 20 some Democrat candidates and Joe Biden is the only one who could who could actually uh, who could actually win a primary. And he won it running away. It wasn't even close. So um, th- there's there's a very similar dynamic at play in both parties right now. And uh, it's going to end up with the American people having to have another choice of hold your nose and vote for the one you hate the least. Charlie, you can take this wherever you like, but um, Joe Biden is facing some uh, trepidation about his renomination from not just his left flank, but his center. Um, this young congressman who uh, is flirt was flirting with a potential challenge to Joe Biden and then kind of backed out and says somebody else should do it. Um, you have this sort of nascent no labels effort. You have Joe Biden champing at the bit. You have Con- Cornell West, who's running for the Green Party nomination, likely to get it. All of them are s- chewing at the same voting demographic, generally a center left uh, voting base in this country. But none of them, as far as I know, are making that case, Dom's case, about Joe Biden's legal exposure, and at very least, how his son's legal problems are going to overshadow what Democrats would otherwise like to talk about. Why are they not talking about this in plain terms? Are they afraid or do they just really don't think that it's, it's that genuinely not a big issue? Because those legal troubles remain nascent. They are still inside the egg. I don't think that Joe Biden's exposure here is yet equal to Trump's, and I don't think that it yet balances it out or cancels it out. And I don't know if it will, but I know that it could. Now, you said earlier, Noah, that the conservative media in this country has done a terrible job of preparing conservative news consumers for the possibility maybe even the likelihood that Donald Trump is going to be convicted of one of these crimes and possibly sent to prison. I agree with you. It has done a terrible job. The left 
leaning press, which we usually refer to merely as the press, is doing a horrible job of preparing Democrats and independents, and frankly, anyone, of the possibility, for the possibility, I should say, that there is something here. Every single piece that is written about Joe Biden and this inquiry tamps it down. It's a blanket atop the flames. You get none of the usual insinuations or hype that you get when the subject is a conservative or a Republican-appointed Supreme Court justice for that matter. I won't reiterate everything that Jim has said, but there is more here than there was to Russiagate. And there is a hell of a lot more here than there has been to any of the hits on the conservative Supreme Court justices that we've seen rolled out over the last six months. If indeed this becomes a genuine scandal, as I believe it already should be, albeit not one uh, that rises to the level of impeachment of Joe Biden, there are going to be a lot of people who are shocked by that fact. And there are going to be a lot of primary voters, perhaps, who wish that they hadn't put Joe Biden back in the driver's seat and who now worry that the Joe Biden scandal, as it might be, is cancelling out the Donald Trump scandal. We are one revelation now away from there being a bona fide Joe Biden scandal. We are one. The line that we are hearing from the Democratic Party and its acolytes is that there is nothing to tie this to Joe Biden explicitly. That's the defense. And that is true. And until it is true, it will be unfair to push beyond the facts that we have. But if that changes, if there is any evidence whatsoever of a quid pro quo or a payment that was intended for or on behalf of Joe Biden, that disappears and you have a massive, massive problem. And at that point, it could it could absolutely cancel out uh, the, the Trump indictment. Let's play a quick exit question game there. <clears throat> Charlie's scenario. We get a pretty unambiguous uh, uh, revelation that suggests Joe Biden fi- benefited financially, personally from Hunter Biden's conduct. I think we're already there because Joe Biden and Hunter Biden's interests are aligned. Nevertheless, we get that. We get the evidence. Joe Biden faces significant public pressure within his party to resign. Yes or no? Charlie. Well, I think the answer is no, not just because we live in such a partisan moment and that played out after January 6th when the Republicans failed to impeach Trump on the other side, but because an awful lot of people are going to say, well, what happens if we do that? A resignation would be an admission of guilt and it would probably, although not necessarily, hand the election to the Republicans and possibly (laughs) to Donald Trump. I just don't see a partisan and utilitarian Democratic Party, which is every bit as partisan and utilitarian as the Republican Party, acquiescing to that outcome. So I think that in a normal political culture, of course the president would have to resign. I think here the answer is no. And I think, to finish, that's why the press has been ignoring this. That's why the press hasn't said, isn't it a little bit weird what happened in that courtroom in Delaware? This is why the press hasn't said, "Mm, I don't really like this appointment of Weiss. This looks like double dealing. This is why the press hasn't applied the same tone and the same interest and the same vim to coverage of this investigation as it did to Russiagate, because it knows, and it is largely an organ of the Democratic Party. It knows that to do so aids Donald Trump. And in the estimations of the press and the Democrats, and maybe a lot of people who are evaluating this reasonably, Donald Trump's the bigger threat. Jim, pressure to resign, yes or no? I'm going to disagree slightly with Charlie. Uh, I'm going to observe that it'll be, when, if, when that piece of evidence comes along, 
I notice I'm saying when, I'm not saying if. I suppose I should <laughs> be saying if, but I feel it's more like much more likely than not. Um, I think a lot of Democrats will take a very hard look at the head-to-head polling between Biden and Trump. Uh, they'll be looking initially nationally, but they really should be looking at those key swing states. And if you look at the national numbers, Biden's ahead most of the time, but not by a lot. Uh, I wouldn't say it's quite a jump ball type election, but Trump is still hanging in there. And obviously Trump has had about as bad a year, uh, you know, four indictments and, you know, his usual erratic rambling self and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, Trump is still in it. You can imagine a scenario, economic downturn or Biden starts rambling on stage and seems senile. You can imagine a scenario where Trump wins. I'm not saying it's likely, but it could happen. If that happens, you will see the dial on pressure for Biden to announce he's not running for another term and, st- you know, and to, uh, and as much as like, I know there's no democratic faith in Kamala Harris, but I think that would start a panic that Biden is hanging in there just barely right now. And something that says, yeah, Joe Biden's a crook and he's been helping his, his son's clients for a long time might be enough to tip things to make you know, the Republican nominee a more likely winner. And that would set off a Democratic panic, and you'd see some expressions of that. Dominic? Um, no, I don't think there would be pressure to resign. Um, I think there's been two you know, recent kind of high-profile Democrats who have resigned from office, so Senator Al Franken and uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York. Um, now, both of those were for things related to sexual harassment, which is obviously a, a different thing than what we're talking about with Biden here. But I think the conventional wisdom among Democrats, certainly for Franken, is that his resignation was a mistake. And I think the um, I think there's some thought of that with, with Cuomo as well, especially as we see how his um, successor as, as governor there has been performing, which is um, from a Democrat's point of view, um, not as well as, as Cuomo did. So um, I, I, I don't think, uh, I, yeah, I, I think we've sort of, we're in a political moment right now where resignations for either personal honor or a feeling of responsibility to the country are just not uh, not a thing that, that, that people are, are, are considering too seriously. I'm going to agree with Jim, not just um, his assessment, but also his expansion of the definition of resigning to include not running again for uh, re-election, uh, in part because I don't think it has anything to do with honor or dignity or even criminal exposure, but the integrity of the party and its electoral viability. And also, I, I think Democrats can rationalize themselves and are rationalizing themselves into the idea that Kamala Harris is a capable, competent politician who can take the reins and appeal to 50 plus one of the electorate. I can see that rationalization coming together overnight. But that's a topic for another day. A topic for today is your garden, because you're running out of summer. That's why you're going to need to get in touch with fast-growing trees to beautify your garden and Lay down that tree as as soon as you can ahead of the winter months so that it can take root and spring beautifully in the springtime. Fastgrowingtrees.com has thousands of easy-to-grow plant, shrub, and tree varieties expertly curated for your unique climate and needs. From Meyer lemons to evergreens to shade trees and everything in between. No green thumb? No problem. Fastgrowing trees plants experts are just one Zoom chat or phone call away. They're always available and eager to help. They can even walk you through your entire garden and help solve problems you're having with your plants and trees. Plus, fast-growing tree plant experts have specialized degrees and training to help troubleshoot from root to leaf. It's like telehealth for your plants. I can testify to fastgrowingtrees.com being awesome. I got a variety of uh, arborvitas, which are these big evergreens that grow very, very quickly to uh, create this little plant fence. They are indeed growing very, very quickly. And like he said at the beginning of this, uh, at the beginning of the read that you can get some Meyer lemons. I too got Meyer lemons. I'm only two years into this thing and I have four or five really gorgeous looking Meyer lemons that are just about to ripen. I don't want to jinx it, but they're almost there and they look great and I can't wait for them to mature. With Fast Growing Trees 30-Day Alive and Thrive Guarantee, you know everything will look great fresh out of the box. Join almost 2 million happy Fast Growing Trees customers. Go to fastgrowingtrees.com editors now to get 15% off your entire order. That's 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com editors. 
Last week, on the Hawaiian island of Maui, we had one of the worst, fastest, deadliest wildfires that that island has suffered in nearly a century. Uh, right now, uh, 100 people are confirmed dead. Uh, almost 100 people are confirmed dead today, and the situation on the ground is apparently getting much worse. NBC News reports today that, quote, some residents feel as if they've been left behind to fend for themselves. Resources are in very short supply. The looters are apparently moving into the burned out portions of these towns in Maui. Land speculators are attempting to scoop up evacuated and burnt out property. It sounds really harrowing. The Biden family, meanwhile, is taking it pretty easy. They spent last week on a Delaware beach, and this week they're jetting off to Lake Tahoe for some much-needed R&R. The guy just works too darn hard. Uh, there's a lot of cheap populist point scoring to be done off this. The president and his defenders are quick to note that FEMA is on the case, they're holding briefings, and the president is never really offline anyway. And there's some truth to that. But it's not something I have a lot of sympathy for. If this was a Republican in office, this would be a wall-to-wall -wall news story. The press would be blasting whoever the president was for not going to the site, for not dis displaying the proper amount of empathy uh, and suffering in, in solidarity with his fellow American citizens. And when he went, if past his prologue, media would be scrutinizing every single move he made, policing the tone of his remarks, and uh, trying to pick apart things that could be interpreted as gestures of insufficient, insufficient to the weight of the moment. Dominic, is there any value to that critique, the critique of the president not being on the ground, on site, displaying his trademark empathy? Or is it just partisan, you know, partisan uh, food fight, you know, point scoring? I don't really care if he goes or not. <laughs> you know, him standing around somewhere doesn't really make any difference to anyone. Um, uh, you know, there's wildfires out west in California pretty much every year. Presidents don't usually go visit that. And I don't think, I don't, I can't remember any time that a uh, president has been criticized for not going to a wildfire in California or something like that. Um, so I'm not, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I'm not exactly sure that um, it's, it's true even that uh, a Republican president would be harassed about it. Uh, a Republican president would, however, be harassed by the press in a different way which is to say that they're a global warming denier and that they are, their party is somehow responsible for all wildfires that happen anywhere in the world. Um, the issue that we have in Hawaii right now, so first of all, I mean, just taking the press coverage on, on, on wildfires and on global warming that we've heard in the past, if someone told you a year ago that the deadliest wildfire in 100 years in the United States would happen in Hawaii, would that be... Would that be what you'd expect? No, you would expect it to happen in California because we were always told every time there's a wildfire in California, this is because of global warming and that this is, this problem is going to get worse and worse and worse. Now, uh, those fires in general do not end up being uh, very deadly. Um, California has ways to deal with these things. Um, they, they, uh, uh, you know, people are warned they have, they have a much better system for that. Hawaii is not as well prepared for that, obviously. Um, this is not something we expect to happen in Hawaii, but there were some signs about this. Um, one is about an invasive species of grass in Hawaii. That's not native to that, to that habitat, um, that burns easily. And that, and that was part of this problem. Um, there is some truth to, you know, if you want to make a global warming case about this, that, um, you know, it, the conditions being drier make these things more likely. But the facts remain that 85% of wildfires are human started um, and not human started in the sense of, um, you know, putting carbon emissions in the air, but human started in the sense of leaving a campfire uh, unattended or, or um, you know, just being irresponsible with, with fire in general. Um, and, uh, uh and then, you know, in Hawaii, it's even it's even less than that. You know, th these are almost never um, natural natural issues. Uh, we don't know exactly what started this fire yet, but um, stock price of Hawaii's electric utility has tanked in the markets because um, some people are thinking that it could be a problem with electrical equipment. But again, uh, you know, the, the the media coverage of wildfires that this is some kind of thing that just that just happens because we've made earth angry because of our irresponsible uh, use of fossil fuels or whatever that's not how wildfires work and i think the over coverage of climate change relative to every other kind of environmental issue 
right? Forest management is also an environmental issue. Um, being able to, uh, you know, you know, uh, 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 staying on top of invasive species is also an environmental issue. And these are things that we have professionals that are, devote their careers to 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 uh, to uh, to making sure that this stuff uh, that this stuff happens, and um, uh, you know, treating every single problem that happens in the environment as though it's about climate change is part of the problem. Why we're going to keep getting surprised by these things that happen that maybe could have been foreseen a little bit better and prepared for. So, Charlie, there's not a lot of pressure on Joe Biden to go to Hawaii. Karine Jean-Pierre was asked about this at a uh, recent White House press briefing, and she reacted with indignation and took offense at the mere suggestion that the president should blah, 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 blah. Um, But maybe they're right. I mean, think about how the Republican experience is going to these disaster zones. You're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Uh, George W. Bush flies low over the disaster of uh, disaster area after Katrina, and he's attacked for being removed too far from the disaster, even though he eventually touched down. Donald Trump goes to Puerto Rico, and he's accused of uh, you know lobbing um, paper towel rolls at hurricane victims like it's concert merch. There's no winning. It's not. A, there's not a lot of upside to it. Why should the president go? This is the press has taught us: if you go, we're going to criticize you for it anyway. No, it hasn't. The press has taught us if you're a Republican and you go, we're going to criticize you for it anyway. And if you're a Republican and you don't go, then we're going to hound you until you do. This is a perfect example of media bias. Of course, I have no interest whatsoever in elevating the president into some sort of pope. The president of the United States, in my estimation, was designed to be and should be a bureaucrat. I want a Coolidge-style president who runs the executive branch and executes the law and does little else besides. I don't want a king. I don't need a spiritual leader. The idea that Joe Biden, as the chief executive of a sprawling federal government, needs to go to Hawaii is preposterous. But we can't have a double standard on that. Either the United States wants to have an ever-present king, or it doesn't. The need for a king can't shift depending on whether he's a Republican or a Democrat. Pretty much every criticism that I have seen of Joe Biden not going to Hawaii has not come from those who believe that he can improve things by going, but from those who are aware that when the president is George Bush or Donald Trump or anyone for that matter, the press insists that he would be infusing the problem with a great and necessary empathy and care if he were to go, and are pointing out that instead of adopting that approach, Joe Biden went to the beach. So I don't want to live in a country in which the president is held up uh, as uh, the great symbol of all that is right and good and lovely. But I also don't want to live in a country in which that is true on only one side. So I have a great deal of sympathy for those people who have been taught to put side-by-side images of a disaster with the president looking as if he doesn't care by the press, and no sympathy whatsoever for those in the press who are saying, well, what could he do? Or for Karine Jean-Pierre for pushing back against it indignantly. She knows this game. You live, you die by the sword. What I would like to see happen in the long run is for the American people, Democrat or Republican or Independent or whatever, as adults to agree that we are no longer going to be susceptible to this game. That if we hear people playing it, we will tune out or push back or criticize them. That this is not going to be a one-sided parlor adventure game that only applies to the Republicans. But until that point, I'm afraid that Joe Biden uh, is going to have to suck it up. Jim, two-parter for you. One, should he stay or should he go? And two, it, as the you know political presidential historian here, off the top of your head, what was the best performance from an administration amid a massive natural disaster? Hmm. Um... I can think of the worst in political terms, probably 1992, 
after Andrew. Like, I was okay. That was jumping out, and I've heard people speculate that that cost George H. W. Bush the election, uh, winning Florida. At least that's the narrative um, that's calcified around yeah. it. I don't know whether that's true or not. Uh, before I jump into that, Noah, I do have a couple of quibbles with the way you framed this. Uh, first, when discussing Biden's uh, whether the president, you know, is tuned into uh, developments in a natural disaster, you said the president is never really offline. I think we have a president who's more accurately described as never really online uh, mentally. That is uh, the White House's line, to be fair, right. but absolutely fair criticism. Secondly, you said his patented empathy, and I'm going to dispute that. What Joe Biden is not really this legendarily empathetic figure. What Joe Biden likes to do is remind people of the tragedies in his life, which are indisputably, you know, awful. And God, you know, God spare anyone who's ever been through something like that. But he likes to. Biden tells people about that, and he thinks that means it is a very good way of saying, "Oh, I know how you feel." Now, people have just been through something terrible, like say the families of those slain at the uh, entrance gate in Afghanistan, really don't want to hear. Or okay, different people respond to tragedy in different ways. But a lot of people don't want to hear that you know how they feel. Right now, they very often they feel like no one understands exactly how they feel. And the last thing they want to hear is about how bad you had it back then. I know you probably, very often people mean well when they say, I know how you feel. But people who've just had lost their homes or lost their loved ones don't want to hear about, oh, you've been through it and you know exactly how they feel. Um, Biden is not actually that empathetic. And as we've seen, that was four or five days ago, man. Um, Biden is also capable of being extremely unempathetic and unsympathetic to people who deserve such. Um, I, I don't, first of all, I think Katrina changed everything. And I think a lot of Katrina was a dirty pool. Um, could, are there fair gripes about the FEMA response? Yes. Uh, but basically, the press at the time decided that Hurricane Katrina was going to turn into a George W. Bush story. Bush had just gotten reelected in an environment where he was, you know, just crucified mercilessly by the press. I wrote the Kerry spot back then, I remember. And, you know, B Bush won. He won by a majority, which not many Republican presidents have done since then. And people were, the press was shocked. So Bush began his second term with the media determined that he would never be allowed to do that again. And they would not allow him to be portrayed as empathetic in any way, shape, or form. Um, and so I think that basically it was like the story of Katrina turned into a story of Bush as opposed to a story of the mayor who didn't get anybody evacuated, the governor who dithered, and all kinds of other complaints. How bad was the uh, Kathleen Blanco in Louisiana? Bad enough that they elected Bobby Jindal the next year. They were willing to roll the dice on this motormouth, young Indian-American uh, kid who's, who spoke too fast and who had all these you know, crazy ideas about reducing the size of government. That's how, ba you know, that's how bad things got in, in Louisiana. Um, so in theory, I don't think there's anything wrong with the president going to a disaster site, ideally a couple of days after when there's enough resources to spare for presidential security, et cetera. Certain people who've just endured a natural disaster are going to feel very good when the president shows up and gives them a hug. And some people aren't. Some people are going to say, I still lost my house. What are you going to do? Sometimes it does some good to say, yes, FEMA is here. We're sending funds. We're going to re you rebuild. This is not the end of everything. We will stand by you. I mean, Bill Clinton did this well. Um, I feel your pain, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but, you know, I don't think Biden is particularly good at this. And, I, you know, would it, should he go? Uh, you know, I, I would see no harm in it. Um, but I don't actually expect Biden to genuinely be all that empathetic to people because I think at age 80, he's beyond that. Uh, in, in normal, a normal American president could, you know, be helpful in a normal natural disaster like this. Fair enough. I don't know what the answer to my question is, but off the top of my head, my terrible, callous, conservative, cold heart would say Calvin Coolidge, 1927, Mississippi floods, go look it up, even though it was a prelude to the big government we now, we now live with, that was a better time. Um, we're going to move on to some other business, and normally I would have surveyed everybody to find out what it was, but I forgot to do that at the open of the show, so it's an entire mystery to me what your light items are today. I'm going to start with you, Dominic. Um, I uh, watched uh, Dial M for Murder for the first time uh, a couple days ago. So the Hitchcock film, um, it was okay. Uh, I was expecting it to be actually a little bit better than it was, to be honest with you. I really liked uh, Rear Window. That's my favorite Hitchcock film that I've seen. Um, but uh, 
but it was uh, it, it was good, and I'm, I'm glad that I have glad that I have seen it now. I've actually not seen any of those movies. I've, I'm so terrible with movies. I don't know what anybody. See, I'm I'm like that too, and that's why I'm trying to I'm trying to remedy that. Good for you, Charlie. What have you got going on? Well, yesterday, hang on a moment. It's Tuesday. No, Sunday. I spent the afternoon in the pool with my kids playing a game where they jump into the pool, into the air while I throw a football and they see if they can catch it. And occasionally your kids just do these amazing things that you can't quite believe and that blow your mind. And my five-year-old staged a catch that honestly has me wondering if he's going to be playing next season for the Jaguars. He jumped up in the air. I threw the ball too hard. And with one hand, he grabbed the end of the ball, pulled it down, pushed it into his shoulder, brought his other arm up, (laughs) and fell into the pool. He's five years old. I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my goodness me. If this were on TV, this would be on on the highlight reel. So uh, I'm impressed with my five-year-old swimming pool football catching. Give my kids some tips. My nine-year-old is about to start tackle for the first time. He's very anxious about it very trepidatious about getting hit. And I've, I've tried to talk him out of it because these kids are 60 pounds a piece. What can they do to you? But I guess that's, it's all relative. Yeah, well, maybe start him in the pool and then he'll get used to... The should take your advice. Falling without hurting himself. Very good. Jim, what'd you do this weekend? Well, uh, as listeners probably know, I was out last week, uh, family vacation. We hit the Nordic countries. We went to... Uh, Copenhagen, Denmark, Oslo, uh, Stockholm, Sweden, and then on to Oslo, Norway, about three days in each one of them. Exhausting, but a lot of fun. I think if the, the, the one of the sites that I, I, I always like to consult Atlas Obscura before I go somewhere and find some sort of, you know, cool or unusual sites and things to do. And in Copenhagen, under a bridge, it's called the Hodge, Hodgebro Bridge. I'm probably mispronoun- butchering the pronunciation, but there is a sculpture of a family of mermen waiting for their wife and mother uh, to return. I guess it's based on this uh, ancient Nordic legend of a woman who became a mermaid who became a real woman. And they're all under, these statues underwater. So you have to know where this is, this is and you look under and you can see it and you're looking down into the water and you can just kind of see these ghostly figures. And I just loved it because like it's a statue of art that like while we were there, pedestrians and tourists, everyone's just walking completely beyond. And I just kind of struck me as fascinating to create this work of art that is only going to be seen by the people who are looking for it. Uh, struck me as great. I have a picture on my Instagram. Um, yeah, so it was a really good week. Glad to be away. But uh, I guess I'm glad. I to just be googled back. this sculpture, and the thing that strikes me is that this water is so clear. This river goes right through. Oh yes, Copenhagen. The, uh, both Baltic, both the Baltic as a general is less uh, salty than most seas, and Copenhagen reportedly has some of the cleanest water of any major city in the world. So yeah, you can see pretty well into it. It's gorgeous. So I am talking to you um, with my power out right now, and I'm just going to extol the glories of living in a compound in an undisclosed location in the wilderness where we have backup generators and the modern uh, conveniences that allow me to not skip a beat, even though you had a devastating storm last night that took trees down everywhere, took the lights out. in 10 years, 15 years ago, the idea that I'd be able to you know, work from home after such a disaster and not have to scramble and figure something out uh, would have been just beyond comprehension. And today it is blessedly normal and banal, Um, but it's something worth thinking about. It's time for our editor's picks. I have a sneaking suspicion that at least two of us, maybe more, probably have the same editor's pick, but I'm going to start with you, Jim. All right. Um, I meant to say this in the uh, discussion of uh, Biden going to Hawaii. Jeff Blahar kind of summarized and just echoed all of my thoughts on this. Uh, it's a corner post entitled A Disaster, A President, and the Limits of Consolation. And it's just this uh, really well-thought-out, fair-minded assessment and uh, pointing out the limits of what a president can do, our expectations. We talk, talks a bit about media bias. And he just kind of walks through um, how unfairly this issue is handled. And the importance of it gets turned on and off like a light switch, depending on who's the president at any given time. Charlie. Well, I'm going to cheat very slightly because I'm going to take an Andy McCarthy corner post 
titled Is the Looming Georgia Indictment the Most Perilous for Trump? To get the full advantage of this, you need to click through to his New York Post piece, but he does excerpt it on the corner. Uh, It's a useful explanation of the difference between the federal and state charges and the difference between the statutes that are used. And the conclusion Andy draws is that this is a stronger case, a less controversial case overall than the federal one. So read the NR Corner Post, then click through to what Andy describes as America's real newspaper of record, the New York Post. Dominic. Uh, My pick is Jim's Morning Jolt today about Ukraine spending. Um, uh, Not only because uh, Jim is back, and so uh, we're back back to the normal morning jolt, but also um, it's just it's classic Jim uh, just going through the facts of, of what's really going on and cutting through a lot of the political BS. You know, he does a good job of saying, you know, the relevant comparison is not the U.S. versus any individual European country. It's the U.S. versus the European Union, which still has a lower economic output than the U.S. does. But um, it's a more accurate comparison there. And when you see that, you see that Europeans are actually supporting Ukraine at very, very high rates. Um, and uh, and uh, the idea that the U.S. is going this alone or that the Europeans aren't pulling their weight is just not really true. So I'm surprised nobody did pick it. I want to give an honorable mention to Jeff's piece and for all the reasons that uh, Jim said. It was a really thoughtful uh, expression. But I'm going to go with the post that has set the Internet on fire. Mark Antonio writes, Oliver Anthony's Fuzzy Lament. Go read it. It is a fantastic uh discussion and uh, frustration with a particular sort of disposition that has become very prominent and prevalent on the right in the post-Trump years, which is one that uh, rewards a sense of persecution, that revels in the idea that you lack any agency or control over your life, that your personal circumstances are not of your own making, that someone else did this to you, and there should be some comeuppance meted out against them. It is a toxic philosophy. And uh, Mark Antonio Wright does a fantastic job uh, dissecting what has become, only since last week, the latest country song to dominate our politics. But that is going to do it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this show without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Dominic. Thank you, Jim. And thank you to the absent Rich Lowry. Thank you very much to our advertisers, Fast Growing Trees and Waterstone. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors, and we'll see you next time.